Hello, and welcome to For Your Listening Pleasure, a podcast focused on talking with interesting and diverse individuals and discussing how their backgrounds shape them into the people they are today. I am your host, Mallory Waxman. I am honored to be welcoming Cleo Franklin to the podcast. Cleo is the CEO and founder of Franklin Strategic Solutions, a global consulting business focusing on leadership development, business development, and strategy, as well as executive coaching for business and nonprofit industries. His leadership career spans over 30 years with John Deere, Case New Holland, and Mahindra as a global executive. Cleo is also an accomplished author. His latest book, What Do You See When You Look at Me?, is inspired by and co-written with his son, Michael. Cleo's two other books, Coffee with Cleo and Lessons from Our Mothers and Fathers, can be found via the link in this episode's show notes. I could not think of a better guest to kick off Black History Month with, and I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Cleo, thank you so much for joining me on today's episode. I've been looking forward to this. And you were so gracious enough to actually send me one of your books. And I'm going to start with actually a quote that you talk about, because I think it really sets the scene really well. Um, You mentioned that your mother was a light-skinned African-American, while your father had more of like a darker, like ebony shade. And you talk about how your parents' union produced nine children, so you're one of nine, with a diversity of skin tones that were well-reflected across the African-American color palette. Can you talk about what life was like growing up in Chicago, and what do you mean by that? Some listeners might not know so much about colorism, or in this chapter you sent me, uh, people were really confused when you were a little kid that your mom looked one way and you looked a a different way, even though that's just kind of how genetics work sometimes. Would you mind diving into what childhood was like for you in Chicago? You know, that's a great question. And thank you. Uh, it's it's an honor and pleasure to be here on your on your podcast. And, you know, growing up in Chicago, I, I grew up on the west side of the city. And uh, affectionately, uh, the neighborhood was called K-Town. And all the streets start with a K. Uh, I think you, you be in Chicago and uh, Kildare Costner, uh, Kettville, Colin, I, I won't go through the litany of names, but growing up uh, in our neighborhood, and of course, um, first, let me just talk about my parents. Uh, yes, my father, um, born in a uh, rural small, rural community in just uh, due north of Stuttgart, Arkansas, on a small farm in Casco, Arkansas. And he's a dark-skinned African-American, a dark-skinned Black man like I am. And uh, my mother was uh, born in uh, the, they call it the Boot Hill of Missouri. Uh, it's southeastern Missouri in, in Hayti-Wardell, Missouri, on a small farm. And uh, I, I have her DNA. She's uh, about 22% of her DNA is, is of course, uh, spread over uh, the UK, uh, all over uh, Europe, et cetera, et cetera. So very light-skinned. And so in my family of nine, and I'm right in the middle, uh, if you look at us, we're a diaspora, <laughs> without question. The reflections of, of, of our, our skin tone and, and, and palate are all very different. And so my mother, being of a different skin tone than myself, uh, people would not think that she would be my mother. Uh, she would visit me in a specific uh, chapter you're talking about. She came to visit me, you know, me at school. I went to uh, Daniel J. Corkery, a fine school on the west side of the city. But people would look at me and say, 
Cleophas, Cleophas, is that your mom? I said, of course, that's my mom. She cannot be your mom because you guys are not the same skin tone. Uh, she's so much lighter than you. And so your question about colorism, uh, it is something that exists, uh, I'd say, throughout eons, uh, throughout the world, across the world, uh, working for Mahindra Mahindra, you know, uh, which is situated in, in, in India. Uh, if you go to India, you will see not just the, uh, a myriad of skin tones, but all across the world. And what I would say is that sometimes people will refer to you or will anchor uh, what they think about you based on what they see on the surface, and that's your skin tone. And so when it comes to the African-American community or diaspora, uh, you would see color reflected in more than just one tone. And so did it bother me? Not necessarily. Uh, she was my mother. I mean, I didn't have to justify that. I mean, she's the most beautiful, talented, smart woman ever ever have been in my life, uh, besides my wife. But that being said, um, it did give me pause on occasion. And you know, I, I think that's something that I'm sure other people probably would let that worry them, but, but not me so much because I was just proud when people would say how beautiful my mother was. And I was also uh, always proud and honored when, you know, they would think that, you know, I was not a product of her. You know, beauty is reflected in so many different ways and as well as excellence. And so uh, she was me, I was her, and yeah, I really didn't care. <laughs> you know, what was interesting is in that chapter I was reading, she was coming to your school because you were in speech therapy and you talk about that. And I don't know if I've ever really addressed this on the podcast, but listeners who have listened to episodes can hear sometimes I pronounce words a little differently because I too was in speech therapy for a lot of elementary school. And when I was reading what you were talking about, that embarrassment of like a teacher coming into the class, saying your name, pulling you out, I felt the exact same thing. And I've never actually read someone else uh, describe it in a way that was so similar to what I felt growing up as well. But like you, I overcame it and proceeded to follow the plan that was in place between my teachers and my parents and continued to excel in my academic career as you did too. But what do you really remember about that as we grow up and we think about those early childhood memories that kind of shape ups, the fact you wrote about that obviously impacted you to some extent. Yeah, you know, I, you know, my books, uh, I do believe in, in sharing a little bit of uh, oneself, which requires uh, vulnerability, right? And, and being vulnerable and, and what that allows us to be is, uh, is who we are. And, and, and I think it also humanizes us, right? Uh, they're no different than I am. But I struggled uh, as a, as a uh, in my youth uh, uh, speaking, and there were terrible words and uh, things I could not pronounce, and I, I got teased about it. And that being said, my mother, who was a a person that truly believed in not letting anything or anyone define who you are and what you could be, uh, was steadfast. She placed me right into speech therapy. Now, that being said, I was in speech therapy from first to, I'm sorry, from kindergarten to second grade and a little bit in third grade. But being called out and singled out in class, you know, we 
talk about homogenization, right? And everyone wanting to belong and, and, and not be different. But there was something different about that. And people would ask, you know, hey, Cleo for Cleo, why why are you why why are you, why do you have to leave in, in the middle of the class? And having that responsibility of explaining it to my peers was a little tough. But I will say this, although it bothered me, it didn't bother me to a point where I would not stop being me or that it did not you know, prevent me from having good relationships with my, with my friends. You know, now and then, you know, it would probably be a few, uh, uh, as I would say, uh, I would have to show my hands <laughs> and, and let them know that, you know what, I might not be able to uh, pronounce a word or two, but I, I definitely can put you down if you continue to tease me. But I, I would say embracing that struggle and being able to speak around the world at conferences today, uh, being someone who has, I think I have a good command of the, of the, of the King's English, uh, it didn't come easy. And it's a struggle that I embraced, but one that shaped me in a way that there's nothing that you can accomplish if you are steadfast, if you continue to believe in yourself, but more importantly, if you believe in not worrying about when things get easier, but just try to do hard things better. So I believe in doing the hard things and it was hard for me, but it made me better. It's interesting because you have spoken all across the world in leadership conferences and overcame that, obviously. I have a podcast where I literally am speaking and sometimes I'm saying words or names that before maybe I would have struggled with when I was younger, but it's interesting how those um, challenges shape you and kind of give you a little bit more grit in life. So for listeners who might not know, I know you through my parents. They have known you from high school on because you actually attended Von Steuben, even though you lived on the west side of Chicago. Would you mind kind of sharing how you got that um, experience? Yeah, and and your parents are uh, um, great people, as they would say, good folks. Uh, that being said, my my uh, journey to Von Steuben happened uh, in a couple of reasons, in a couple of ways. Um, coming out of Chicago during a time when I graduated from grade school, um, there was this option for public schools that was called permissive transfers, and that would allow a certain amount of of students from different neighborhoods to go to other schools in the public school, uh, school system. Um, but that being said, there were other ways if you didn't want to go to your home school. And my home school in my neighborhood was Farragut High School. I had lots of friends that went there, no problems, but it was not an option for me. I did not want to go to Farragut, not because uh, it was anything issue, any issue with it, but I'm kind of a variety seeker, curious guy, and wanted to do something different. And plus, my sister went to Sullivan High School on the north side. So it was a little different and I wanted to follow her her trail. Um, the other option that I wanted to share with you is that uh, you could test into two schools and there were technical schools uh, at the time in the city. It was Limbloom Technical School and as well as uh, Lane Tech. And I tested into both. Uh, my plan was to go to Lane Tech. Um, but the thing that prevented me from going to Lane Tech was that you had to live north of Roosevelt Road. And I lived south of Roosevelt Road. So our address was fudged. Uh, little did I know that they would do an audit program. And that being said, uh, they called home and checked out that I didn't live at the address that we 
basically placed on the um, application after being accepted, which led me to one other option. And that was Von Steuben. And I had friends that went to Von Steuben. Uh, one of my great friends by the name of uh, Waldo Harvey, and, and we called him Big Doe. He was Dr. Harvey. I'm sure you've heard of him. Uh, but that being said, was the reason why that I went to Von Steuben. Now, Von Steuben is one of the smallest high schools, public high schools in the city. And uh, I will tell you what, it wasn't my plan, but I'm glad the plan happened because that experience really influenced me and changed me. And you were a phenomenal athlete. You went to school for basketball. And when we spoke last time, uh, kind of getting some insight before we recorded, you were planning on going into the NBA, which I had never known, which is amazing. But you had a little bit of a setback, or should I say like a step back that you kind of had to deal with. Would you mind sharing that? Because I think a lot of us, especially those in athletics, when you've only really focused on that and that's kind of who, what defines you or what you really are hoping happens and that just isn't a possibility anymore. It's kind of hard to recalibrate and figure out what is your next step without feeling sorry for yourself. And from what you and I've spoke about, you didn't feel sorry for yourself for that long at all. Yeah, you know, it's a, um, I'm, I'm, I don't believe in in being, um, you know, you may be victimized, but I don't like being a victim to anything. But that being said, yeah, I, I, I play ball and um, we, uh, my, my neighborhood, we you know, grew up in doing a little bit of everything, but I was what you call a late bloomer. I, I played basketball. Uh, at um, in eighth grade at at, at Corkery and it wasn't very good, but went to Von Steuben and they didn't have a football team. I was planning to play football. I played football from sixth to eighth grade and pretty good. But um, going over to uh, to Von Steuben, um, I remember uh, I also played the violin for for three years. And I remember going to the music teacher and asking him, "Hey, I like to play the violin." He's but I'm also going out for basketball. He said, "Well, Cleo, you have to choose either one or the other." Now, that's the wrong thing to tell me. I have to choose. Well, I did make a choice. I guess I will not be playing a violin for you. So I ended up playing basketball there. And we had a great, great, um, great experience, great team, very decent. Um, I uh, eventually um, came out of the school as, you know, recruited as one of the top 25 players in the city. We had a lot of honors and uh, we went to the, the uh, I want to call it the, uh, the quarterfinals of the city and lost and some of the things that I do regret that I wish we would have played better. But that being said, I went on to um, to junior college, uh, Muscatine Community College, and was their all-time leading scorer, and, and then to Morningside University. This is the point. I um, was a preseason All-American and one of the best Division II uh, players in the country. The thing was that I broke my foot. And so... I set out a year and I rehabbed and you talked about having options um, and being, or sometimes being singularly focused. And without question, I wanted to play in the NBA, but my parents always told me to have a second option and I had a second option, but I wanted to play in the NBA. All right. I rehabbed, came back the next year and played my fifth year. First day of school, fractured my foot again. Now, Mallory, that's tough. I was in a depression probably for about two, two to three weeks. But this is what I'll tell you. 
that setback um, allowed me to have a senior year, a phenomenal senior year, better than my junior year. And it also gave me an opportunity to realize that when things happen, you need to shift. And I adjusted, you know, just my entire game and strategy. And although it seemed to close the door on a professional career, I was able to go and, and have a couple of tryouts and, and make a, a CBA team, which was the next step to the NBA. But I decided not to pursue that only because I wanted to do something different. And what allowed me to do something different and pursue a business career and go pursue my MBA was knowing that I made it. You know, I played in the Chicago Pro League, the vaulted uh, premier Chicago State uh, Pro League, as well as Malcolm X with some of the best players, Mark McGuire, Isaiah Thomas, uh, Terry Cummings. I can go on and name a lot of these guys. But that experience really taught me this. You know what? Things will happen to you. And although you may not have the role that you wanted to play, there's always a role that you can play. And so that's the philosophy that I took. But I will say it, it didn't come easy because I did lament. I was depressed. I was pissed. <laughs> but yet and still, um, as they would say, it wasn't meant to be. And you pursued that business career and had a phenomenal professional career from that. But you joined John Deere after college, yes. which is so different because you didn't grow up in a farming community or you utilizing uh, their products. What drew you to that organization? You know, it's, it's interesting. I, I'll preface it this way. You know, many of us in, in a lot of respects are probably one to two generations removed from the farm. And because my mother and father had a farming background, um, we would have opportunities to go stay specifically uh, with my grandmother where my father grew up uh, in his, on his small farm in, in Casco. Uh, it was called Keaton Township, uh, very, very proudly. But going to school in Iowa, and also along with the experiences that uh, connected us with uh, my agricultural roots and my parents both were decided not to farm, but still steeped in things that they learned and from being a small town America and growing up on a farm, I was very comfortable uh, in, the, in the agriculture space, but as well as the city space. And so working for John Deere for 21 years was something that I did not plan as you stated. But it was probably one of the best things ever for me because I got a chance to not just work in the agriculture space, but the construction space, as well as the consumer commercial equipment space, as well as the financial space. And so I, in 21 years and 14 different positions, seven, eight promotions, I had a very, very, I would say, um, spirited career but yet and still steeped in a country, not a country, but a company that is an iconic agricultural brand. And yeah, it wasn't planned, but without question, I, I adapted to it pretty well. What was that like for you to be going there right out of school, a young black man from Chicago, growing and climbing that corporate ladder in a time where I don't know how important diversity and inclusion really was to all organizations 
uh, yet alone John Deere. Did you ever experience anything that made you question if it was the right place for you? Mallory, it, it was, you know, when I started in 1988 and I, I had previously had, um, I did spend several years in the banking and finance industry. And one of the things that your question was, how was my experience? I, I would say this. It was like the Charles Dickens novel. The, it was the best of times and the worst of times. Um, we were not very diverse. And, and in a lot of respects, the industry is still not very diverse. But let me get to the point. My experience there was one where I was not um, interested in being given any opportunities by entitlement. I wanted to earn it. And I was quite frankly um, forced to do so. And, and I had no issue with that. Uh, many of the people that I worked with were unlike me from a background, you know, with a different life perspective as well as uh, from an ethnic background. But there were times where I was told that we're not going to um, bring African-Americans in this specific uh, area for whatever reasons, and, and the reasons were not justifiable. There are also times when things were, I would say, uh, set to me, or there were opportunities that were not given. And without question, you know, I, I knew that there had to be some underlying issue. But, you know, one of the books, I, I have a book coming out called Conversations with Cleo. It'll be my fourth book. And I, the name of the title is We Do the Hard Things. And, and why I'm mentioning that title, I kind of illustrate that it took courage. And it, I appreciate the courageousness of the people that I work with, because this is the point. Many of the positions that I worked in, I was the first. And for those decisions to be made to place me in the position was the first for them as well. So that's courage times two. Now, did it happen all the time? No, but it happened enough because of, I would just say the performance that I put on that I was able to deliver and execute could not be ignored. And I was not going to be ignored. And so that being said, um, my experience, it was, I said the best of times and the worst of times, but it really helped me understand that if I'm going to be in an industry as a minority, and as well as women at the time, I needed to not only be confident, I needed to be consistent, and I needed to make sure that nothing was ever questioned when it came to my brand, when it came to performance, when it came to delivery, when it came to uh, keeping my word and also representing myself. And I think that that's so relatable because there's been times where people are in a role that never have been there before, never given the opportunity. And sometimes you feel like you have to perform more so than others because you, whether you feel like you're carrying that weight of, well, I don't, I want others after me to have this opportunity or because people are questioning if I'm going to be able to follow through or come up, come out on top, whatever that can be. Right. It's, it's kind of hard to always be the first. Did you ever feel that weight? Yeah. You know, it, it was um, not just at John Deere, but 
uh, previous previous experiences where um, I had challenges of, of being the first. And, and by the way, Kamala Harris has a uh, quote from her mother that I, I love. She says, you may be the first, but you better make damn sure you're not the last. And so sometimes in, in life, and I subscribe to this, it's bigger than you. And so you are on a journey to continue a legacy that requires you to send the elevator back down when you reach a particular place of aspiration. So I'll make this point in, in a couple of stories. For example, at Morningside University, what was the first African-American uh, president selected at the college? But being there and getting there was tough. The dean told me not to run. <laughs> and the dean discouraged me, which was the wrong thing to tell me <laughs> because I ran anyway. And the election was so marred with irregularities, with so much fraud that, and I lost probably about 10 votes. We had to have another election. I won by a landslide. But those are the challenges of being the first. Something else I'll share with you as well. Several times that, uh, in my career, not just at John Deere, but in, in the other places that I've worked for, I think here in the U.S. specifically, uh, it's uh, the understanding of agriculture that it is very globally, and I've traveled across the world, uh, is very diverse in so many ways. And there are lots of people that are not uh, Caucasian or white that are farming. But I would have dealers or uh, come to me and say, my goodness, um, I never met anyone in agriculture that was, you know, black or African American. And so you talked about the responsibility or the impact on me. You know, I took all those opportunities to say, well, if you have not, you're going to meet this person and that person is me. And whatever paradigm or whatever particular uh, perspective that you have, after you engage me, um, the next person that you engage that is unlike you will be quite different. And so that was the responsibility that I take upon myself till this very day to make sure that those engagements are positive, although they may start up as negative, but to do the best that I possibly can. Because, you know, I, I understand that um, all I can control is what I can do and, and be the best brand that I can be. But uh, having a burden of always being your best and doing your best uh, is tough. Can I give one more question, one more story for you? I'd like to share this. There was a time at Deer where my career was hampered and it was hampered by an individual who did not like the fact that I not only had good command of my business, but I was confident. No, I'm not an arrogant guy, but I am confident. And in some of the um, reviews and talent reviews, uh, he would tell people that, you know, Franklin always has an answer to a question and he knows everything. Well, as opposed to saying this man is detail oriented and he takes, you know, uh, again, uh, works hard to understand his business inside and out. He was preventing me from being promoted to other positions. 
And so the advice that I was given was this. Whenever he asked, whenever he would pose a question for you in some of the meetings, you know what you need to do? Even though you know the answer, if he's asking the question, say, you know what? And I won't give his name. That's a great question. Can I get back to you on that? Now, I had to repress <laughs> my command of the business and knowledge to satisfy the ego of someone who probably was not at my level. But yet and still, that's the tact that I had to deal with to be able to prevent him from being a hurdle in the projection of my career. So that's the type of crap that one has to deal with. But that's the learnings that you take and then make sure that they're just a roadblock, just a, a blip on the screen, because even though he felt that way, I would not let him define me or prevent me from going where I need to be. As you were telling that story, I was smiling because I was told that once by a manager that even if I knew the answer to the question, because I would come prepared to meetings, that I didn't always need to give the answer instead to say, you know what, I'll get back to you on that. And I said to my manager, but that's not efficient. That would be me having to go type out an email, send it, and then it's back and forth communication where in the moment I can just tell the individual the, the right answer. I'm not going to tell you an answer if I don't know it. But it was interesting. It was like my first lesson when I had my first corporate job in the game of chess corporately, yes. like how do you maneuver? And it always stuck with me. And I'm, you know, now that you're say, talking about, you had the same experience, why we have to placate senior management when you know the answer, it's like their own fragile egos. But if you do your job too well, then you don't get to be promoted, which is crazy to me well, when you think about it. It, it, it is, and, it, and it's it's unacceptable. Uh, and, you know, this world is, is not perfect, neither are we. We're flawed. But in the business world or any particular endeavor that you take on, you're going to deal with these difficult people. In some case, in some cases, uh, he was never concerned whether I knew the answer. <laughs> Uh, that was not the issue. His particular task and his focus was to put his foot <laughs> on top of me or to prevent me from pursuing anything else uh, beside uh, what he could not aspire to be or I can say rise to be. And so I, I, I think the lesson for me in that situation was that when you play the long game, and it's, for me, it's all about perspective. Uh, to get over myself because, hey, I know the answer. But even though you know that I know the answer, you don't want to hear the answer from me and give you more fuel. You know what? I did not play into his game anymore. And so as you talk about chess, no different than game theory, uh, those are the things that you play when you look at the payoffs. The payoff was greater to be able to reply to that person in that manner, which is crazy. <laughs> but yet and still, 
it's part of reality. And some of the things that you don't learn in, in grad school or in business school, and you know, one of the things that I try to talk about in my books as well. Yeah, it's that real life experience when you're presented with an issue like this. How do you really handle it in a way where sometimes you kind of have to swallow it a little bit, but you end up coming out ahead. After 21 years, you decided to leave John Deere. What was that decision like for you? Because I would think that a company like that, they have the company men, you spend your career there. Yes. Uh, till I'm sure you leaving after over two decades was a shock to the company. It, it was a big shock. And, and I'll tell you how big a shock it was. A lot of initiatives after I left uh, to retain, to nurture the talent of minorities uh, were initiated uh, after I left. But let's talk about the impetus and, and why I left. Uh, one is that after 21 years, I felt that I had a chance to give a good feeling of what I wanted to do and where I wanted to be. John Deere really helped me understand business from a process perspective and systematic perspective and, and being detail-oriented in the rigor of, of decision-making. And as I talked about having a command, but leaving was not easy but it was the right thing to do for me and people don't leave there. And so the decision uh, was made over several years, but when I went to work for a competitor, which was Case New Holland and being part of their, their global leadership team, uh, I left as senior director of sales and operations for New Holland, North America, which I was the only African-American uh, in the leadership position and the only one in that organization in, out of my 250 plus uh, personnel reported to me. Um, being able to see the lens, Mallory, of the agriculture business from the number two agriculture manufacturer in the world, which was great. Um, it gave me a chance to see how deer was viewed. It gave me a chance to be involved in a totally different culture, uh, one that was very competitive, but not as structured uh, as, as as John Deere was. One that was more fast-paced, not to say organized chaos when I was working there, but yet and still, um, the decision to leave, as I said, to leave some of my colleagues and, and friends, um, not, not easy, but it was the right thing to do. And I'm glad that I left because what it allowed me to do was this. It allowed me to travel the world in a different manufacturer, uh, in a different leadership role, and to learn some hard lessons about the industry. But it also gave me, I would say, a three-dimensional view of the agriculture industry, my own personal view, the view from John Deere, and the view from Case New Holland. And so, um, as I shared earlier, uh, in that case, uh, I have to say my experience was also like Charles Dickens' novel, the best of times and the worst of times. But Yet and still, um, as they say, you embrace the struggle and why? Because you you grow from it and benefit from it. And what I love about you and your story is you are constantly growing. You don't just stop. You are um, on a ton of boards. I think when we spoke, you said like nine boards, which I was shocked to hear because I don't know how you have that kind of time on top of writing your books as well. But you know, I think that a lot of people on their bucket list or when they make goals for their life, some people will mm -hmm. say, I want to write a book. 
it's a, it's an undertaking, but how did you decide to go down that path and start with writing? You know, I, um, writing, uh, next to reading, reading, my first love is music. Uh, second love is, is, is reading. <laughs> uh, and of course, uh, third love, uh, of course is writing, but I was asked, um, I would say maybe 2012 uh, by LinkedIn. I was an avid user of LinkedIn to submit articles. And what I thought at the time, I said, you know what? I've been thinking about writing a book and I want to share my story. And I want to write this leadership book that doesn't have all of the 25 cent words that anyone can read at any time and, and just be, quote unquote, you know, real talk. Uh, unadulterated. And what I did was this, Mallory, I started to submit articles on LinkedIn and use that as a testing ground and also as a incubator for my first book, A Coffee with Cleo. And that's how I began writing. And started in, I said, 2013 or 2012, but was able to put together uh, I wanted to write 10 to 12 articles, and I'd be darned if I wasn't successful in getting that done. But also, I wanted to get feedback, uh, not just from the people that I knew, but outside of my network, and whether or not what I wrote was was it good enough. Did they give a darn about listening to it? And, and Mallory, uh, I got good response, and... You know, in 2019, right before the pandemic, I had all of my stories collected. And I said, you know what, I'm going to write this. I'm going to publish the book. And, you know, although it took a little bit of time, uh, that is how I was able to write my first book. And you also have another book, Lessons from Our Mothers and Fathers. And I know we started this conversation kind of talking about your parents. But one thing that you told me that I thought was so fascinating Your parents grew up in the Jim Crow era and like the small farming towns, which you mentioned. And when your mom passed away in 2021, so it is coming up at almost another year. Uh, I believe she passed away at the end of January. Your mom had four master's degrees, three undergrad degrees, and had almost finished her PhD at the age of 92. Your father was a mailman and also a barber. They were involved in the community. Um, When you mentioned how much your mom loved education, she was a teacher, I believe, and continued her own education. It only made sense to me that you would write a book really focused on your parents because they were phenomenal people and accomplished so much when you think of where they started their life. How did their legacy impact you? Uh, tremendously. The uh, My parents, my goodness, my father lived to, oh, I'd say a month from his 86th birthday and my mother just four weeks from 92. I give her a 92 and I give him his 86 without question, but they, they grew up in the Jim Crow era, of the Jim Crow era and their lives were quite unlike mine. And one, my dad, you know, and this is what I, I write about specifically and more so about my father. He was a hard scrabble, no nonsense, uh, didn't mince words. 
And his voice resonated with that bass baritone. I mean, he could cut you up in five or six words in a sentence and he didn't have to say anything more. But that being said, um, high school education, and here my mother, uh, the first uh, to uh, graduate uh, out of her uh, family. She was the, the, the oldest of seven. She was an academic. She was also a, uh, a uh, an ordained minister in the Methodist church, so Reverend Gertrude Franklin. But they both embraced education. And the option to not excel in school the op didn't exist. <laughs> in fact, they incentivized all nine of us for good grades. You were paid. They say, we will pay for good grades. And in my in my household, money was hard to come by. <laughs> so, and I do believe in incentivizing people. And, and so I was highly, highly motivated. But they also gave us those lessons that they learned growing up during the eras that they grew up. And what, what I learned from both of them was this. Um, as my father would say, you may be my dependent, but I'll be damned if you'll be dependent. <laughs> uh, great, great lesson from him. And my mother, uh, in, in a recent book, I have her quote. She says, anytime someone says can't, I just erase the T off that damn word. Because I'd be darned if I'm going to let someone who says I can't prevent me from what I can do. And so if those two quotes uh, does not illustrate what type of people they were, raising nine children uh, on, on the west side of the city and taking their, uh, their small town America, uh, I would say, uh, mentality of being industrious and, and persevering, et cetera, uh, it, it made a big difference for us, Mallory. And so we were not entitled. We had to earn everything that basically came our way. And they, I like to say, may not have been perfect parents. And that's the reason why I wrote the book. I wanted to write a lessons and leadership book from, I think, some of the best uh, teachers in the world. And that's our parents, whether it's your both parents or a surrogate parent. Uh, and 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 share that with uh, leaders or aspiring leaders. But as I said, they were not perfect, Mallory. But what they were, and and I appreciate this, is that they were present, and they were present in the best way that they could possibly be. And for that, without a a a, I would say a toolkit that basically gave them the perfect way to raise their children, I'd say that they did pretty damn good. And my mother being able to pursue her dreams for education rubbed off on me and several of my other family members as well. I mean, many of us have, uh, you know, master's degrees. There's uh, my brother's a doctor, and then our second generation, there's plenty of PhDs. So um, uh, kudos to uh, both Cleophas uh, Franklin Sr. and Gertrude Franklin as well. Absolutely. And you talked about being a parent, and it's not easy. Kids don't come with that handbook. And it's really hard to try to teach your kids empathy and to continue having that um, curiosity in life. And what I really respect you um, and commend you for is you wrote recently a child's book called What Do You See When You Look At Me? And it's really talking about 
how a child's imagination really is their superpower. We as a society should do a better job of nurturing that curiosity because through conversation, through questions, we can learn so much about one another that maybe don't look like us or are from our neighborhood or where we grew up. And why did you feel the need now and now it's 2023 to write a child's book? Well, probably um, one, um, I'm a, um, I'm a lifelong learner and, and curious person that um, I don't, I don't believe in, in setting bounds um, for your aspirations. That's one. Two, my son, Michael Franklin, uh, who uh, is high-functioning Asperger's. Michael has, let me just give you the end game. Uh, Michael has his own voiceover business, um, graduate from Lone Star College. Uh, he is talented and smart as a whip. But there are certain aspects that he, his Asperger's challenges him with non folks that do not have Asperger's or autism or are not aware of it. And when he was growing up, people would place expectations or try to place expectations on him uh, due to what they saw. And so he is the inspiration of that book because Michael understood early with uh, his mother Lois and I that you know we all bring something to the table (laughs) some of us probably are not just good company at all some of us just talk too damn much (laughs) some of us you know want to take the easy route or whatever but we all have something and so therefore you have Asperger's so what but I'll tell you this do not let that be the thing that is going to hamper you or prevent you from pursuing your passions and your dreams. And so he's a very curious child, just like me and I'm sure uh, all other children. And, and so writing this book really is a testament to his journey. But it also, I, I feel it is a I'm going I'm to use a little bit of a, of a construct for for parents. It's a read along and read out loud book. And I think ages from three to eight years old. But it's, I think it is the perfect opportunity and gateway to help children ignite and spark their imagination in concert with their parents about not just what the unlimited possibilities that are within themselves internally and what they wish they could be or what they would dream to be. And this book is an illustration of that. And it examines and and challenges uh, children to think about how others see them, how they're perceived, how they perceive themselves, and quite frankly, how they can be based on what they love and dream to be. And so a little bit of a long answer, my apologies. But I'm I'm very proud to have written this book in collaboration with my son. And, you know, having written two leadership books, a third one, I'll be ready in the spring. I think, why not a children's book? Because I believe in two things. You know, we often talk about leaving a better planet for our, our children. Why don't we just create 
and position our children to be better for the planet. <laughs> and, and, and so that's one. And the second thing is this, you know, I, I belong to, I serve on the FFA uh, Foundation Board for Texas. And, uh, you know, I, I think you're aware on the National FFA Foundation Board. And, and, and I'm involved in a lot of other uh, youth uh, platforms. But I think the way that we can create the best future is to invest in youth today to generate that future by making sure that they're prepared and ready. And so that's the other reason why I wrote that book in collaboration with my son. I love everything you're saying. I'm like nodding along to this. What would you tell both individuals in a professional setting? How do you help train future leaders, but also parents Mm -hmm. training their kids to hopefully become better leaders? What advice would you have? Mallory, I'll say three things. One, I think as parents um, and as mentors, your role is to not provide the answer, but to focus on helping, supporting, and assisting others to find the answers for themselves. I think that's important. I think people forget that. I, I think there's great delineation in that. Sometimes we want to be the solution. Yeah, just, you know, pass, go, collect $200. No. The harder thing is to take yourself out of the situation, understand what your role is. Uh, and your role is to support, assist, and help so that someone can find their own path and their own way. It doesn't mean you're abandoning them. You're just helping them. I think that's one. The second thing, and why I'm I'm very... And I'm not a Pollyanna, I believe, without question, but I, I, I'm, a, I'm an optimist with a healthy dose of realism. But it's all based on what I see and experience. And so it brings this advice. I think it's important that we meet children, youth, where they are, where understand where they want to be, how they want to get there, and why, as opposed to bringing our own self-reference criterion to them, and how where we are, where we want them to go, how we want them to do it, and 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 bypass you know what they think. I think when you're able to do that, um, I think you're able to separate yourself. And be able to do the first thing that I said, being able to support and assist and help them because you're meeting them in the places and the spaces that matters to them. And when you do that, I think you'll spend the time to understand why it matters and what matters more. And that allows you to be more informed to help. Okay. And the last thing I would say is this, and this isn't very important to me. Uh, I gave a couple of um I would say keynotes uh, in the past uh, 90 days, but there's a quote that I use and it's about legacy. And I think it's about understanding and being humble. Uh, It's Deuteronomy uh, verses 6, 10, and 12 and summarized. And it says this, uh, we, we drink from the wells we did not dig 
and we sh we sit in the shade of trees we did not plant. Now, why those verses and why that summation means a lot to me and why I would share with others is this. What you do today impacts the next generation, the next generation, and the next generation, and the next generation. And you may not see the benefits and the fruits, but the activities and the actions and the investments that you make are going to allow them to also drink from the wells they did not dig because someone before you put the time in and the effort and thought about you or sit in the shade of trees you did not plant. To me, that is a very level-setting, orienting, humbling perspective that I would ask everybody to contemplate. And so those are the three things that I would share for leaders and for parents, because it's bigger than you. And what's bigger than you and what matters more so to others is going to require a different perspective and a different investment. Leo, I think that is the perfect way to end this conversation. I want to let you know you have an open invitation whenever you would like to come back, talk about your next book. Please know that I end every conversation with the same three questions. And the first question is, if you had a quote or a mantra that you live by, what would it be? You know, there's um, there's two quotes, uh, and, and I live by them. Uh, one is, uh, be humble or be humbled. And, and believe me, uh, the times when I was not humble, I was humbled. And it's not too, it's not a lot of fun being humble. The second one is, uh, be the change that you like to see in this world. And, and why I live by that is that is, I love the word be, it's action oriented, it's purposeful. And uh, it has, it's meaningful to an extent that it says, you know, to drive change, you have to be that change and it's going to take effort. So those are the two quotes that, uh, and the mantras that inspire and fuel me in my life. The second question is, if you could relive any one day, which day would you choose? You know, it's, that's a great question. And those that know me and, and I know my, 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 uh, my wife and my kids, I, I'm, I'm a forward thinker and, and I don't like to revisit the past, but there, if the, the days that if I could revisit, and, and I feel very lucky, Mallory, about this is uh, the days that all four of my children were born. Um, three of my children, and that's my youngest, I was there at their birth and was amazing. My oldest son, I was there the day after he was born. And believe me, I drove 560 miles to get there <laughs> and, and seeing him was just game changing and transformative for me. And, and so if I could relive those moments, it would be the day that my children were born. I mean, it was special, nothing like it. And finally, the last question is, if you had a theme song that played every time you walked into a room, which song <laughs> would you choose? Oh my gosh, I told you music was my first love. There's lots of theme songs, but you know, the theme song that if I walked into a room um, that would represent me and the persona and the impact that I want to bring uh, is um, Are You Gonna Go My Way by Lenny Kravitz. And I'll tell you why. 
the guitar int intro, and I played the violin for three, four years, but I'm a fool for guitar players. I have an affinity, <laughs> you know, Jimmy Page, uh, uh, Jeff Beck, Jimi Hendrix, the greatest, these great guitar players. That riff that he plays when he starts that song, if, if you are, if you're not caffeinated or if you need to be caffeinated or if you need to pay attention, you will pay attention. And so that would be my theme song that would be played when I walk into a room. So I'm going to go ahead and add that to the For Your Listening Pleasure theme song playlist on Spotify. <laughs> so listeners can get that caffeinated buzz, that feeling when they walk into the room and uh, to that song. Again, Cleo, thank you so much. This has been such an honor to speak with you. Your story and your journey is just so impressive. I am sure, just like your mom and your dad, you'll continue learning and growing and helping uh, all of us as the years go by. So thank you again so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Mallory. The pleasure was mine. Uh, great honor to be on For Your Listening Pleasure.